0: Hello and welcome to the Hundred Day Writing Challenge, Day Seventy One. If you've been doing this course daily with no breaks, like some kind of gimlet-eyed psychopath, then by my reckoning, you've wrapped up ten weeks of exercises. Even if you haven't been doing it every day, you've still done ten weeks of work. You've just been wise and kind to yourself and taken holidays. That's that's amazing. Uh, and I just wanted to, without sort of sounding uh, sort of all air punchy, punchy and sort of boosterish going over the top I know that wouldn't be very british now would it but I just wanted to stop and say thank you like really genuinely <laughs> don't want to make you uncomfortable by being pathetically grateful but but thanks for sticking with me and yourself and your craft this long it genuinely means a huge amount to me that you're still here um I don't know what challenges or setbacks you've overcome along the way I, I suspect Quite a few, right? I suspect there have been mornings where you have not felt like doing this. I expect there have been multiple occasions where I've told you what the exercise is going to be this day. And you go, oh no, that doesn't sound like fun. Or I'm going to muck that up. Or, ugh. I mean, I've done enough writing workshops to see see the face the, the looks on people's faces when I announce what the exercise is going to be and it's almost never enthusiasm right it's a bit it's a little bit intimidating right here's a challenge that you're now going to do um I don't know in what ways your life or the world have changed since you started I I, I bet a bunch of ways but I do know that plenty of people who start the course won't be listening to me saying this now You know, lots of people, for whatever reasons, will step back and stop. And I'm not, you know, I'm not calling them losers or anything. I don't mean it like that. I just mean for you to be here still writing, that's huge. Like, if you can put up with me making sort of silly dad jokes for 10 weeks solid, and let me tell you, there are people who've shared moderate length car journeys with me who rapidly found themselves craving the sweet release of death then you have more than enough resilience to pursue the often difficult and emotionally involving business of finishing stories you actually care about and probably do a bunch of other non-related non-writing related stuff as well you know it, it turns out you can achieve quite a lot when you put your mind to it doesn't it you know I I don't know where, how far you foresaw yourself getting with this and what kind of progress you saw yourself making but like if you hadn't sat down and daily remade your commitment to doing this work this these 10 11 12 weeks or however long it's been would have just passed anyway right but because you chose to turn up because you kept choosing to turn up each time you press play on the podcast you know you're in a different place now than you were and that you would the different place than you would have been if you just had had that sort of 15 20 minutes each day free to scroll instagram or whatever you know You, you you've learned some things you didn't know before you have all these weird tiny creatures in jars from all your daily exercises and You've built up some knowledge, you've built up some stamina, and you've learned some stuff about yourself, and we're not even close to being done yet, you know, like we've got we've got quite a while to go don't don't mean to make you feel suddenly weary, but like we're we're not there yet, so today, in our little genre buffet i I wanted to take a big bite into the crunchy spring roll with a human toe inside that is horror. When I had the author Alexander Gordon-Smith on the podcast, and that episode is still up if you want to go and listen to it, um, he said the horror he writes comes from real fears he has or he had when he was younger. It all stems from some kind of like primal fear that he's experienced. So when he wrote uh, one novel called The Fury, there's this thing that makes everyone around you suddenly turn on you and want to kill you, and right afterwards they go back to normal. So suddenly your family... Might be trying to murder you. It's it's kind of like a... It's kind of like a... Kind of slasher flick turned inside out. Where instead of there being one knife-wielding murderer... Chasing everyone else. Everyone turns into that person except one person. Right? Now, of course, that is a... That's a big exaggerated fear, right? Like, that wasn't anything that he was dealing with in his everyday life. But the underlying feeling you know what if I wasn't safe even around people I thought I could trust that's a pretty deep terror right and a real thing people experience like the fear of ostracization I would say is like one of the central human fears right like we we have hardwired into us as a kind of gregarious speech warning I'm about to go into like a, a little bit of sort of spurious eco evo psych here but like we have hardwired into us as human beings a fear of ostracization and real skill in appraising how other human beings are feeling gauging their mood making sure that we're doing all sorts of things to work out how other people feel about us because you know in the kind of like first units of human beings moving about in kind of tribes or like we needed to not get ostracized because we relied on cooperation for being led to clean water supplies for finding a mate for getting food for protection right that kind of mutuality is baked into who we are and loads of species we diverge from by the way there's like loads and loads of gregarious species that rely on one another i mean all species you know have to have to mate, right so we all we all like baked into life is this fear of being rejected of being ostracized of people turning on you And, and that's what that kind of ends ends up getting at in a way that you just sort of can't with other genres, right? You can't take that terror and make it manifest in such a sort of naked way. And I think that's kind of amazing, right? You know, zombie stories often ask, what if society collapsed? You know, like, and I'm, you know, I talk about this as someone who has suffered from severe anxiety and met the threshold for various anxiety disorders and panic like these are feelings that sometimes feel very visceral and real not like some abstract kind of like chin struggle what how would humans behave if society it's like you feel it viscerally that this might be something that we're just about to happen as an anxiety sufferer right and that's what you know zombie stories take that same thing and say what if the systems and the routines that we and you know anyone who's like you know fled from conflict for example these aren't these aren't questions that don't affect actual human beings right it's stuff that's all around us that the way we construct the world we sort of kind of like box it out vampire stories are often about fears of charming predators moving amongst us and some people can't recognize them well that's a real thing right just because it's dressed up with this kind of like particular type of monster. It's a real thing that affects actual people's lives. There's nothing imaginary about it. Ghost stories are partly about death, but I think more often, especially when they appear in the horror genre, because I think you can have ghosts across all sorts of stories, right? But in the horror genre, they're more about the past that we thought was buried, the things that we can't acknowledge that we sort of shut away or pushed down or tried to hide. It's about that past rising up to remind us of unfinished business. Monsters, you know, in these horror stories, they threaten families or communities, Often on the surface, like very idealised kind of white picket fence communities in ways that tug at some hidden terror deep inside of us. This part of us that realises and secretly knows you can have all the law and order and routine and trappings of civilization you want, but dreadful things still happen to humans every day. And therefore they might happen to us. You know, I've been reading a lot about this idea called the Fair World Hypothesis. In psychology, this idea that people really cling to this idea, we psychologically want to believe that the world is fair. And it's terrifying to us that there might not be, you know, I press this button, I get this definite reward, I go here, I get this definite punishment, to the extent that we will massively distort, not everybody, but like we all have a bias towards distorting our model of the world to make it feel more predictable and more fair, even if it means sort of believing that if something bad happens to someone we try and rationalize that it was kind of their fault and include that includes us as well if we have something bad happen to us in our past we try and rationalize that actually we had it coming that we did something wrong that we deserved it because we want to believe if that's true there might be steps we can take to avoid it in future if it's not true We might not be able to avoid it happening again. Now, these are terrifying things. And horror makes them flesh. And it allows us to confront them and meet them head on. I think that is a profoundly amazing thing for art to do. Now, there are other flavours of these kind of horrors. You know, mass plagues, nuclear fallout, uh, mutants aliens. Uh, in a sense, the nature of the beast is, is less important than who it afflicts and how and why. You know, like I, I think suspense thrillers are mostly horror in which the horrors are technically possible. So for this exercise, you're going to have a go at writing a type of scene we see a lot in horror. I call it, and there may be other scholars of horror who have better names for this trope but I I call it minor viewpoint character dies horribly. Sometimes uh, this scene sort of appears as a prologue before we meet the protagonist sometimes it happens a short way in you know cutting away from the main story to give us a scene from the point of view of a minor character and it's the first time we encounter the primary horror of the story. Uh, maybe it's a monster, maybe it's a you know manifestation like uh, you know killer mushrooms or something like that. We see that the horror of the story is a real thing and it has teeth. So this might be the moment where your minor viewpoint character, a burglar say, breaks into the wrong house and gets savaged by the thing chained up in the basement. Maybe the teen we met at a party at the start of the book heads down to the abandoned lumber mill, rattled but keen to find out if the rumours he's been hearing about the place are true. Surely it's just infested with raccoons or something. Maybe this is the scene where Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park shuts down the electric fences and gets shredded by raptors. In that instance, his meddling actually fuels the engine for the rest of the plot because he lets the dinosaurs escape. Um, Now, this character in this scene, in the minor viewpoint character dies horribly scene, might be a bit of an asshole who the audience darkly enjoy watching perish. You know, they might, on the other hand, be very sympathetic. You know, a poor victim whose fate raises the stakes. You don't even, actually technically from a structural point of view, have to make them die. Like, a a scene could just a scene could still fulfil the function of minor viewpoint character dies horribly, but just have you know, say, a mailman get wedgied and sprayed with ectoplasm by a poltergeist at the haunted house he tries to deliver to. So he runs away, going, "I quit." And, you know, in a more light-hearted or you know, a, a children's horror story that works too. There's still be, we've still seen that the thing's there, that it's real and it will get someone, right? Even if it's just sort of cartoonishly putting them in, in, in the stocks, so to speak, um, they don't have to actually die. It's just this, it's just this encounter where they are sort of got, uh, I'd always encourage you actually to think of ways you can preserve the shape of a story beat while radically shifting, the context, you know, swapping out different pieces of it and seeing what survives and what changes. You know, you can come up with some really cool new narrative flavors that way by taking a trope from any genre and switching pieces out of it and seeing what changes. And and what normally happens, and this is, you know, keep this kind of like you didn't hear this from me, but um, what normally happens is that the because the shape of it has been sort of tried and tested when you swap bits out. It still works in a way that's really cool for the story and readers really enjoy, but it seems really original, right? You've done enough, you've re-sprayed it in a way that makes it seem complete, so people will go, oh my gosh, that's really original, but they'll respond to it like it's familiar and enjoy it that way, and so you get all the kudos of being a kind of (laughs) of, 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 of being a kind of like literary pioneer, while basically being a little bit of a thief cool right now anyway this is the exercise for today you are going to write as much as you can of a minor character dies horribly scene the character is usually alone or so they think so make sure you pick a resonant location for this to happen in uh, if there's not a sort of seemingly benign old lady to usher them in and you know sometimes there will be a a a, a figure at this place that they that they go to who uh, the kind of not a mentor figure they often kind of like have that element to them but you know someone who receives them at the location but if that if there isn't then it's the location that's going to act at first as the sort of second character for them to bounce off now your minor character wants something in the in this scene there's something on their mind i think it's really important you don't just have them sort of like durdling around like picking lint out their pockets until they get picked off uh, h- human beings generally have an emotional valence right they want something and i think it's good it's good to make the scene sort of appear to be about something else even if we know because contextually we're reading a horror that this is probably going to be minor character dies horribly seen like the character doesn't know <laughs> they wouldn't be that they don't just like turn up to get murdered right so you they need a pretext why they're here they need to believe they're in a different type of story and so you know try and give them a strong want an emotional tone and pick some telling details something you know very interesting about how they're dressed or some habit they have whatever to help them stand out you know try and go beyond the obvious because remember they're not going to be around for very long now once you've moved them into the scene, you might start hinting that something's not right. I mean, you know the beats of this right, but I'm just kind of going through them to, to refamiliarize you you know give us seeds of discomfort that make this character choose to get mired further you know and pick a couple of weird unsettling Im- images as well you know when we were talking about kind of a character in a shop and we were trying to show them in love or feeling some kind of emotion well th- this is another way you c- you can kind of give an emotional resonance and a tonal resonance to a scene, without going, ooh, Uh, he went into the old building, and it were right spooky, and creepy, and dark, like, you don't, that's telling, not showing, Uh, so you might just want to, like, pick some objects, or moments, that give off that vibe, because you're trying to create it in the reader, not just tell them what you were hoping they experienced in the scene so you know like you might have a glass table covered in sticky brown liquid a set of vintage dentist's utensils in a case or a mouse mummified in a spider web or other things maybe those are a little bit on the nose I don't know whatever suits your location then if you have time while you're writing this exercise strike see how you go you know have fun i know that's a lot to take in um don't worry about hitting all those beats Uh, i'm just kind of like reminding you of a kind of general overview um like if this really isn't your wheelhouse i think all the more reason to lean into it you know this may be the last time in your life you ever write horror so you might as well go at it hell for leather you know make your one attempt at writing horror (laughs) like real real big you know swing for the fences right 10 minutes are you ready three two one And that's it. Uh, Instead of ringing the bell, I I considered just shouting, Boo! But but that seemed unsporting. I want to retain your goodwill and trust. Now, just like romance, uh, just like comedy, horror, for me, is less a genre, more a strategy. You can invoke horror in literary fiction, in a historical novel, in space, in most types of story. Most of it involves a mood, and, and a mood doesn't need a literal monster. Just the apprehension of one. Monsterless horror might be the scariest of all. Because it's just life. Okay, I love you. Don't have nightmares. Writing about our fears, our worries, our deepest, darkest terrors, to me, is an act of incredible optimism. Thanks for being human. I'll see you tomorrow. The 100 Day Writing Challenge is made possible with the kind support of Arts Council England.